this play it seems to me to be about the mystery of evil, the kind of evil that is with us all the time. Evil in Othello or in King Lear is spectacular, and so it terrifies us. But in Measure for Measure, it's closer to home, closely linked to men's sexual nature. So evil in this play isn't just a, a fright. It's a question. It's not a question about others. It's a question about ourselves. Measure for Measure is about violence committed by men against women. That makes it a most urgent topic today. But it was an urgent topic in Shakespeare's time as well. Shakespeare doesn't isolate this subject, however. He puts it in the frame of politics and the political problem of crime and punishment. The action follows the movement of a society from the brink of chaos to a state of ideal order, or at least the best order imaginable given the frailties of human nature. There's a great chorus in Sophocles' Antigone in which the human being is described as the strangest, the most bizarre, and the most terrible of animals. The word used is denos, which from the same root as dinosaur. The whole chorus funnels down to this political problem. Measure for measure, it seems to me, goes as deep into the political problem as Sophocles does. Shakespeare's Vienna is a model of every political system. I'm Gordon Teske. Francis Lee Higginson, Professor of English Literature at Harvard University. Welcome to Shakespeare for All. Today we're speaking with Professor Teske about Measure for Measure, a play that is structurally a comedy, but its close focus on sin, disease and death give it the sobering, searching quality we usually associate with tragedy. In Vienna, the Duke leaves his place and gives power to Angelo, who is known as a strictly virtuous man. It is Angelo's job to enforce an ancient law punishing sex outside of marriage with death. Isabella, a nun in training, learns that her brother Claudio is to be executed under this law, and she pleads with Angelo for his life. But Angelo says he will only pardon Claudio if Isabella breaks her vows of chastity and sleeps with him. From this picture of corrupt power, Measure for Measure confronts the most profound political questions within a deeply moving human story. How can the transcendental ideals of justice and mercy ever be realised when it comes to governing deeply flawed human societies? The question becomes most acute at the moment Isabella herself is asked to plead for mercy for Angelo, the man who so terribly betrayed her. So much popular entertainment is about happiness, about seeing people happy or become happier or overcome problems so that their individual lives are better. And we're cheered up by that. However, this play is much more ambitious in that it's about how to solve essentially a philosophical problem, which is the political problem of the state reconciling its structures to the human and the human to those of the state. It's a huge, difficult problem. So this is why I find Measure for Measure so deep. Measure for Measure is probably the Shakespeare play that moves me the most. It's the only one that invariably moves me to tears. Othello goes 
through me like a sword, but Lear just crushes me. Even so, and in the end, these plays, Othello and Lear, are about death. Measure for Measure is about life. In Vienna, the Duke announces that he is going to leave the city. To rule in his absence, he appoints a man named Angelo, a man known to everyone as upright and virtuous. Mortality and mercy in Vienna live in thy tongue and heart, the Duke tells him. And indeed, Angelo will be swift to issue mortality, or the death sentence, to Vienna's citizens. There is an old law that the Duke left long unenforced, a law that punished sex outside of marriage with death. The Duke wants Angelo, rather than himself, to start enforcing this law again. And so a young man named Claudio, who has gotten his fiancée Juliet pregnant, is sentenced to death. This would have been as outrageous to an audience in Shakespeare's theatre as it is to us. You can't get around this by means of the great historical bromide and say, well, in Shakespeare's day, they all thought that way. They didn't think that way. The rigorousness of the law in Vienna would seem entirely as rigorous to Shakespeare's audience as it does to us. A gentleman named Lucio and a brothel keeper named Mistress Overdone discuss this harsh law and the related order that the brothels be torn down. Lucio encounters Claudio on his way to prison and asks him what happened. Claudio replies bitterly, Our natures do pursue like rats that raven down their proper bane a thirsty evil, and when we drink, we die. Claudio tells Lucio to go to his sister Isabella, who is training to be a nun in a religious order, and ask her to plead for his life. In the next scene, we learn that the Duke has actually not left Vienna. At a monastery, home to a Christian order of friars, he disguises himself as a friar and explains why he has left his position. The Duke's purpose is deeply political. The laws enforcing social order, especially the laws regulating sexuality, have been allowed to lapse during the Duke's reign. At first, this seemed a liberal and humane development. But of course, eventually, everything went too far. Vienna is now infested with houses of prostitution and sexually transmitted diseases are raging. Children are being born out of wedlock. It's time, therefore, to reinforce the old harsh laws before society completely falls apart. But the Duke wants Angelo to take the blame for the coming necessary harshness. The second reason is that the Duke suspects that Angelo is or will easily become a hypocrite for all his public appearance of rigorous virtue. The Duke intends to test Angelo. Angelo has a huge reputation for virtue, and so he's set up for a fall by this reputation. So far, Angelo seems as virtuous as his reputation. Aeschylus, his second-in-command, pleads for leniency for Claudio. In certain circumstances, he asks, might not Angelo have committed the same fault as Claudio? But Angelo replies, Rather tell me, when I that censure him do so offend, let mine own judgment pattern out my death, and nothing come impartial. Sir, he must die. If he ever committed the same offence, he would desire the same punishment. Claudio 
is to be executed. Questions of punishment and fornication take a darkly comic turn when a constable arrests Pompey, a board who works for Mistress Overdone. Pompey asks how Aeschylus will enforce the law against fornication. Does your worship mean to gold and splay all the youth of the city? He asks. If not, they will to it then. The law runs too counter to human nature to ever be obeyed. Lucio brings Claudio's message to Isabella at the convent. Isabella has a religious devotion to chastity, but to save Claudio's life, she agrees to go and plead with Angelo to pardon his sexual transgression. I do think that you might pardon him and neither heaven nor man grieve at the mercy. I will not do it, Angelo says. He replies in his capacity as a human judge. But Isabella reminds him of the heavenly judge, the Christian God, who offers pardon to sinners. When Angelo insists that Claudio's life is forfeit of the law, Isabella exclaims, Why, all the souls that were, were forfeit once, and he that might the vantage best have took found out the remedy. How would you be if he which is the top of judgment should but judge you as you are? Isabella makes that transcendental appeal. This is essentially the the language of the Sermon on the Mount, judge not, that ye be not judged. It's reasonable for him to respond, but I am a judge, thus I must judge. Angelo points out that enforcing the law is a kind of mercy, mercy to those I do not know who would suffer if unpunished criminals went on to commit more crimes. Human civil order requires constraint and punishment. But Isabella is scornful of human rulers who are more harsh and punitive than God himself. Man, proud man, dressed in a little brief authority, most ignorant of what he's most assured. His glassy essence, like an angry ape, plays such fantastic tricks before high heaven, as makes the angels weep, who, with arse-bleens, would all themselves laugh mortal. She asks Angelo whether he has a natural guiltiness like Claudio's. Until now, we might have said no. This man, described by everyone as abstemious and cold, has not shown any sexual desires like Claudio's. But those desires come upon him during this interview with Isabella. He says he will consider her plea and tells her to return tomorrow. When she leaves, he exclaims, What's this? What's this? Dost thou desire her foully for those things that make her good? This holy woman has sparked his first feelings of lust. What's happening to me? Angelo says. His words are, what's this? What's this? What's this horrible passion assaulting my mind and also my body? It's completely unfamiliar to it. He's horrified by this assault of lust, but he's also terribly excited by it. He wants to keep it. But there's something more. Angelo is highly intelligent. His intelligence is warped. So he's curious about this transformation he's undergoing. He decides to give his passion its head. He doesn't simply do it. He thinks 
reflects and then decides, all of which makes him both more guilty and more intelligent. Oh, let her brother live. Thieves for their robbery have authority when judges steal themselves, says Angelo. But rather than pardoning Claudio, he decides to pursue his desire as the price of Claudio's life. When Isabella returns, he asks her, might there not be a charity in sin to save this brother's life? He will pardon Claudio if Isabella will have sex with him. Isabella is horrified. To her, with her religious dedication to chastity, having sex with Angelo would be a sin that could damn her eternal soul. Better it were a brother died at once than a sister, by redeeming him, should die forever, she tells him. She threatens to tell the city about his terrible proposal unless he pardons Claudio. His reply is chilling. Who will believe thee, Isabel? His power and reputation are too strong for her to attack. My false are always your true. Isabella realises that no one would believe her, but still she cannot accept his terrible bargain. Isabel, live chaste and brother die. More than our brother is our chastity, she says. Let me pause over that line, more than our brother is our chastity. If we react emotionally to it, we might be shocked or feel there's a coldness. We, are, we rush to judgment. The wrong thing to do with Isabella always is rush to judgment. The right thing to do is to think about what she says. Think, to what extent is she right? More than our brother is our chastity. Is a simple statement of fact. She's undertaken this strong protest against the society she lives in by removing herself from it and from the corrupted cycle of sexual generation that exists. And she can't lose her courage at the first admittedly very severe threat to that program of protest. The Duke, disguised as a friar, ministers to Claudio in prison, helping prepare him for death. Claudio appears to accept his fate until Isabella arrives. She tells him about Angelo's offer to pardon him if she sleeps with Angelo. Claudio tells her to refuse, but then he considers, death is a fearful thing, he says, to die and go we know not where, to lie in cold obstruction and to rot, tis too horrible. He tells Isabella that any sin she commits to save him becomes a virtue. Isabella is deeply hurt. Oh, faithless coward! The Duke, who is listening, intervenes to tell Isabella that he has a way to solve all these problems. Angelo, he tells her, was once betrothed. The man who has condemned Claudio to death is himself also betrothed, or has been betrothed to Mariana. Mariana's brother Frederick, who was at sea, lost his life, his ship sank, and he had with him the money that was to be Mariana's dowry. And with the disappearance of her financial advantages, Angelo called it all off. So clearly his love of her was entirely financial. He didn't wish that to appear to be the case, however. 
Understandably, even Angela was ashamed of it. And so he covered it over by saying that Mariana's behavior had been uh, unexemplary. She was guilty of sexual looseness. This is entirely untrue. It's slander. He slanders her. And he gets away with it. Even after Angelo's cruelty, Mariana still loves and wants to marry him. They were practically legally married already. The Duke proposes that Isabella agree to meet Angelo at night, then that Mariana go and sleep with Angelo in her place. This way, Claudio will be saved, Isabella's chastity will be preserved, and Mariana will be able to secure her husband. The doubleness of the benefit defends the deceit from reproof, says the Duke. Isabella agrees to the plan. Alone on stage, the Duke shows his anger at Angelo for so strictly enforcing the law that he himself has broken. He who the sword of heaven will bear should be as holy as severe. Craft against vice I must apply with Angelo, tonight shall lie his old betrothed but despised. So disguise shall, by the disguised, pay with falsehood false exacting, and perform an old contracting. Isabella and the Duke meet with Mariana to arrange what they call a repair in the dark. But things don't go as planned. Angelo keeps his tryst with Mariana and believes her to be Isabella. But he does not pardon Claudio. He asks the provost to send him Claudio's head. The Duke must devise a new plan. A recalcitrant prisoner named Barnardine is to be executed that afternoon. The Duke asks the provost to send Barnardine's head to Angelo instead. But Barnardine, in another darkly comic scene, flatly refuses to be executed. I have been drinking all night. I am not fitted for it, he says. I will not die today for any man's persuasion. Luckily for their purposes, a pirate dies in the prison. They send his head to Angelo, and Claudio is hidden safely away. The Duke now lays his final plans. He writes to Angelo that the Duke is about to return, and, still disguised as the friar, tells Isabella and Mariana to meet with the Duke and denounce Angelo. He also tells Isabella that Angelo did, in fact, execute Claudio as he intended. The Duke then appears as himself to meet with Angelo before the people of the city. Isabella comes before him not knowing he was the friar who advised her and pleads for justice. She declares that Angelo is a murderer, an adulterous thief, a hypocrite, a virgin violator. She says, as the friar told her to say, that she slept with Angelo in exchange for her brother's life and that Angelo killed her brother anyway. The Duke accuses her of slandering the Honourable Angelo and arrests her. We're seeing the enactment of what usually happens to a woman in Isabella's situation. She'd be accused of slander and, at least in the world of this play, sent to prison without so much as a fair hearing. How often has that happened? Innumerable times. A woman who has been wronged, protests against it, and is degraded as a slanderer. Then Mariana arrives to say that it was she who had been with Angelo that night. 
She reminds Angelo of their vowed contract, calls him her husband, and tells him that she was the one who slept with him. Angelo grows angry. He says that the friar must have told Isabella and Mariana to slander him. The duke exits and returns as the friar. Lucio pulls off his hood, revealing that he is the duke. Angelo realises that the duke must know everything he has done. I perceive your grace like power divine hath looked upon my passes. Immediate sentence then and sequent death is all the grace I beg. The duke tells him to marry Mariana at once. The duke then expresses regret to Isabella that he couldn't save Claudio from Angelo's sentence and passes sentence on Angelo himself. For his crimes against Isabella and Claudio, Angelo will now die. The very mercy of the law cries out, an Angelo for Claudio, death for death. Haste still pays haste and leisure answers leisure. Like doth quit like and measure still for measure. An Angelo for Claudio, death for death. We do condemn thee to the very block where Claudio stooped to death. So a life for a life, a head for a head. This is the imminent value of fairness. Mariana begs the Duke to spare her husband. He refuses. Mariana asks Isabella to kneel and plead with her. They say best men are moulded out of faults and, for the most, become much more the better for being a little bad. So may my husband. Oh, Isabel, will you not lend a knee? Mariana is appealing to her to kneel down beside her and plead with the Duke to save the murderer of her brother. And, of course, she hesitates. There must be a tense pause in the theatre. A pause long enough for us all to think, my goodness, would I do that or would I not? Isabella kneels beside Mariana and pleads for Angelo's life. I partly think a due sincerity governed his deeds till he did look on me. Since it is so, let him not die. My brother had but justice in that he did the thing for which he died. For Angelo, his act did not overtake his bad intent and must be buried but as an intent that perished by the way. Angelo does not plead for himself. He only says, So deep sticks sorrow in my penitent heart that I crave death more willingly than mercy. Tis my deserving. The Duke now brings forth Claudio, alive. The Duke pardons Claudio and Angelo from their death sentences and tells Angelo to love his wife. He also asks Isabella to be his wife, though she seems too overwhelmed at this moment to reply. The Duke then meets out further justice. He tells Claudio to marry Juliet, orders Lucio to marry the prostitute Cape Keepdown, who bore his child, and honours Aeschylus and the provost for their service. Finally, he addresses Isabella again. I have a motion much imports your good, whereto, if you'll a willing ear incline, what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. What I think of the Duke's proposal is dramatically satisfying and it comes as a relief. The two most exalted characters in the play... Isabella for her purity and the Duke for his wisdom should be married. 
First, it's a comedy, formally speaking. And second, because this promises that the state will henceforth be in two capable pairs of hands. We don't hear how Isabella replies to the Duke's proposal of marriage. Individual readers and actors must judge how they think she responds. But the proposal does mean that the sources of past destruction in Vienna, political power, sexual desire, have the opportunity now to change direction and become sources of redemption within this imperfect but improvable human world. We'll look further into the play's redemptive possibilities in our next episode. I think Measure for Measure should end in a mood of what I'll call satisfaction and hope. That's not the same thing, obviously, as exuberance or festivity, the feelings we have at the end of other Shakespeare comedies. Satisfaction and hope blended together. What is this feeling? It seems to me a deeper and more important feeling than exuberance and festivity, joyous and splendid as those are. This seems to me more precious 